Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, hosted by Elise Lonich Ryan, Grant Martzoff, and me, Ryan McDermott. I'm a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and faculty director of Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship, inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. My guest in this episode is Jason Baxter, Associate Professor of Fine Arts and Humanities at Wyoming Catholic College. Jason is the rare prolific writer who is also a delight to read. Since 2018, he has published or completed five books, Falling Inward, Humanities in the Age of Technology, A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Divine Comedy, and most recently published his academic monograph, The Infinite Beauty of the World, Dante's Encyclopedia and the Names of God. 2021 will see the publication of An Introduction to Christian Mysticism and The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis. He is currently working on a new translation of the Divine Comedy. We sat down for this conversation in his office in Lander, Wyoming, back in July, just before Jason and his family left town for sabbatical. Where are you guys stopping on your way to South Bend? We are planning on going to the Bighorns, spending a night in Buffalo, then we're going to South Dakota, we're going to spend two nights in Sturgis, and uh, I'm going to go hike Black Elk's Peak. Oh, wow. And then... Sweet. Just you? Uh, my brother might come out to meet me. Yeah. We're going to hike Black Elk's Peak, even though I can't find Black Elk's Vision. If you find it at some point today, let me know. I've been looking for it frantically. What is Black Elk's Vision? Um, it's called Black Elk Speaks. It's a... Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, he was the last of, um, the last of his nation had a vision. Um, when he was a young man on Black Elk's Peak, before it was named that, that his nation was going to grow sick and die. And he was the last great chief. And it did. And later in his life, he converted to Christianity, to Catholicism. But wrote about this this vision as an old man. Yeah. So he was sort of like one of the last medicine men. And why is the peak called Black Elk's Peak? Well, it's just named after him. It's where he had his vision. Um, but I mean, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't named for him for him then, obviously. It was just... A spot in the Black Hills, yeah. and which afforded a great vision, and the vision is extraordinary. And it, if you didn't know better, you thought it was coming from the first first half of Ezekiel or something. It's extraordinary, yeah. So what are you going to do when you get to the top? I don't know. Wait, listen, see what happens. Sounds like Petrarch on top of Mount Ventoux. Yeah, exactly. I'm just going to be still. I'm going to start my sabbatical in silence, like Wittgenstein on a fjord in Norway. So Jakob Burkhardt interprets Petrarch's ascent of Mavantu as the invention of modernity. He's the first modern man. Would you call yourself a modern man? Yes. I'm a modern man who's spent most of his scholarly career trying to understand the medieval mind, in part to understand myself and in part to understand why the alternative was, a, was even thinkable. Was Petrarch, in his lifelong commitment to understanding the classical mind, do you see that as analogous to what you've been doing? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, Ronald Witt says that Petrarch accidentally invented humanism, right? That by trying to recover classical modes of language, he accidentally uncovered classical modes of thought. But it was still in a sort of effort of, of Christian humanism. And also, I mean, kind of, you know, similar to a figure like Nicholas of Cusa, 
kind of an interesting apophatic individual interested in 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 dis- discerning and exploring those areas where knowledge fails so yeah maybe i am <laughs> what do you what do you make of burkhart's portrait of petrarch then i mean burkhart sees petrarch as this ushering in light ushering in self knowledge after a dark age right are are you do you see yourself as reaching back across a dark age in your scholarship or in your in your interests that's interesting lots of questions there i mean i think i don't know I, I, this is the the simplistic answer petrarch was more medieval than we had previously thought and the middle ages was more modern than when we had previously thought and the middle ages is not a dark age obviously i mean i think one of the interesting things i don't think burckhardt could have perceived or maybe couldn't have perceived is the religious origins of things like linear perspective and how it seemingly it's really 12 it's really a 13th century franciscan endeavor to recover a sense of the literal level this is just samuel edgerton junior's book and and hans belting kind of um, uh, riffs on this in his book of Florence and Baghdad. But I mean, when the question, why, why is it that optical knowledge from the Arabs sat around in translation for a couple hundred years before, before it became an active praxis in technology? Well, we really have to look to the sort of Franciscan drive to um, recover a sense of, of, of the literal. And so I think, um, I don't think Burkhart could have perceived those things. As for myself as a scholar reaching back over a dark age, I don't know. I, I want to be both, honestly. I, I, I guess I tend to think that uh, the Middle Ages was more sophisticated than we give it credit for being. But on the other hand, there are some really irreplaceable modern achievements. I love the modern subjective self. I like the sort of emphasis on freedom and dignity and... To maybe even to a certain extent, self-composition. That's exciting to me. On the other hand, there are some really interesting, you know, medieval Renaissance parallels of that when you start to talk about microcosm, macrocosm. This interesting idea that, that an individual could perfect himself by means of realizing within all the virtues spread throughout the cosmos. I think that is actually a really interesting adumbration of, of modern ideas but still obviously in an extremely medieval framework. A friend of mine loves books on tape and podcasts, and he recently tried to encounter Dante's Divine Comedy for the first time by listening to it as a book on tape and couldn't get into it. How would you recommend, what's the best way to read the Divine Comedy for the first time? Well, the best way to read the Divine Comedy for the first time like if you're out of college, you're, you know, you're, you're, if you're not in a in class, world. you need to get four or more friends who are curious and omnivorous together on a weekly basis, preferably on a Tuesday night at 8 PM. And then you need to get Manchego and uh, Rioja Reserva, which are really good together. And you need to read aloud three Conti um, really, really well. And then you need to get my book <laughs> and have a conversation about it. What's your book? But the Rioja might anesthetize any, any pain from the book. <laughs> what, what's the book? Well, one of my books is A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Comedy. 
It came out in 2018 um, from Baker Books. And um, it's been, it was just, it was a joy to write it. I jokingly call it my old man book because it's the sort of thing that you really ought to have waited until you were in your 70s to write. And I kind of jumped the gun and I wrote it because I thought it was beautiful, because I love Dante. And it was an extraordinary experience because I think as, as scholars, you write your monograph and you zero in on one particular topic or the juxtaposition of two interesting ideas. And you implicitly give yourself the privilege of ignoring all of the complexity, all of the polyphony in it. You can just follow that one melodic line. However, when you're writing a book like this, um, which began as a series of lectures and just went sort of five conti at a time, uh, tried to try to frame everything so that it was understandable, but also compelling and persuasive. It means I couldn't, I couldn't ignore anything. It means I had to deal with Dante on all of his ridiculous complexity and all of his cosmology and all of his sort of medieval debates and all of his like weird medieval biology and his astronomy and his astrology and his metaphysics and his theology and his apophaticism and his allegory and his the historical particularity of it that was it was an it was a really amazing experience it was really difficult it was it was exhilarating to do though to try to not just to identify some amazing theme um, in Dante which I've since done uh, in a scholarly book but to try to hold all the complexity together why is the Purgatorio, why are the Purgatorio and the Paradiso just as good or better than the Inferno, which has been the, considered the masterpiece by modernist poets? Right. Well, and then that sort of gets filtered down into public standardized educational models. If you read anything from Dante, you read the Inferno. In fact, a surprising number of people think that that's the end of the story. I think it plays, I don't know, I think it plays into how moderns like to think about, we began with Burkhart, right? I think it plays into the story of how moderns like to think about the medievals as angry and fearful and superstitious and judgmental. I mean, Burkhart more or less says that. And so I think just sticking with the Inferno is really nice sort of affirmation of how, of how progressive we are and how, how, much we've, how much we've achieved since then. I mean, the reality is that even Inferno, of course, is by its own standards, extraordinarily psychologically complex. But Purgatorio and Paradiso, if... I'm not saying this is necessarily the tripartite schema that Dante was following, but um, when figures like Hugh of St. Victor look at the world, say, like in his On the Three Days, they find traces of the Trinity in the very natural operations of the universe. And Hugh says that you can find power, uh, traces of sort of magnitude and multitude, which made you think of power, you can find beauty, which makes you remember order. And you can find a sense of sheer abundance, which reminds you of benignity. And for Hugh, power, order, and benignity are also names of the different persons of the Trinity. Again, I'm not saying that Dante necessarily created a tripartite scheme to express this of Hugh of St. Victor, but it does work really well. If Inferno is a place that keeps talking about, like the key words are terribile and orrore, um, there are parts that talk about the terribile arte of justice. In a way, Inferno is this place of, of terror and power in which the sort of judgment of God is manifest in its apocalyptic numinousness and melts down opposition. Purgatorio is a place of freedom. Purgatorio is the place in which the, the holds of, the, of, 
of individualism and greed and perverse uses of power and always cheating to win secretly and making backroom deals that always keep you in power. This is the place, once all of those things have been burned away, then Purgatorio is the place where people learn how to be good humans again. They learn how to use, use their freedom. And part of their lesson of using their freedom is how much they need one another. I mean, so for me, the terrorists of the envious, Rodantes y Sapia, and Guido the Duco, and others, um, the envious with their eyes sewn shut, leaning on each other's shoulders, the very, in, the very individuals who were avariciously competitive in the previous life and afraid of other people getting ahead now actually have to lean on each other's shoulders and support one another. And in this way, Dante knits together back the human community. Freedom understood within this extraordinary collaboration. Paradiso is obviously something different. Um, a couple of years ago, Slate had an article that said, why doesn't anyone read Dante's Paradiso? And Dante seemed to intuit that people would find it the most difficult. Um, there's no dirt, no fingernails, there are no men holding their own severed heads. There are no mud fights, there's no biting, there's no flatulence, right? I mean, it's sort of, uh, there are no huge heavy stones. I sort of lost all the excitement and drama. But Dante thought it was something, something extraordinary. I know, maybe Dante, Dante liked it like we now like thinking about black holes and quantum mechanics. We like thinking of this sort of idea of kind of pure energy exploding into visibility. And that, I think, for Dante is what he's trying to do throughout the Paradiso. He's trying to project spiritual realities of, I'm going to use a metaphor here, but spiritual realities of liquid joy, of pure ethereal bliss. And he's trying to give it flesh. But all the while, he's trying to take away the very images that he provides so we don't think that his heaven is a literal group of angels playing on lutes, but it's something like a sort of spiritual black hole or a sort of pure quantum, unrealized energy. That's what I think he's doing. Is there a narrative in the Divine Comedy? Is there a story to follow? I mean, I think this is one of the difficult absences to surmount when people start reading. It's, it doesn't seem to have a story in the way that you know, other epics do. Is, is there, but is there some kind of subterranean story that we can follow? Or do we have to, or do we have to accommodate ourselves to the concept and to the enfleshed concept and just learn to really appreciate that and have him teach us how to, how to see and read in those ways? Well, in my other book, not um, The Beginner's Guide, but this other book, which is coming out with, from Peter Lang this fall, 2020, called The Infinite Beauty of the World, um, I, I do try to, I think there might be a kind of narrative. It's kind of very, I don't know, epistemological narrative. But I think if um, there are two cool moments in Paradiso in which Beatrice forces Dante to turn around and enjoy a view from above. And Dante has to take it all in. And for me, this is a sort of major moment in which, remember, Dante's from the city, as he says, which is famous for its, its tribal clan-like mentality. You know, in medieval Florence, there are dozens and dozens of towers, not just the few that remain. 
because every family has its own personal fortress and its own personal clan and its own... I mean, the whole city is, right? It's nothing but Montagues and Capulets. So Dante comes from this extraordinary sort of divisive world in which you fiercely love family and you fiercely love friend and you do, in, you do harm to your enemies and you do good to your friends. But sort of based on that sort of network, Dante slowly has to widen his network of loves. He begins to meet characters from the past, from historical characters, who are enough like him that he's able to expand this network of loves until it comes to Paradiso 26, and he's quizzed by John on what is love, what is charity. Now, it's interesting because the other apostles ask him for a definition of faith or a definition of hope. John doesn't ask him for a definition of love because this is the guy who wrote the Vita Nuova. This is the guy he proclaims that from the age of nine was always in love. He's always been the servant of love. So John knows that he doesn't have to bother with the definition of love for Dante. He asks him how he came by it. And in this extraordinary moment, I, I describe it as this kind of litany of loves of the world, where Dante starts to describe the loves of the world, like all the creatures of the world, as leaves shimmering in a garden. And as the gardener passes through it, all the leaves sort of shimmer in delight. I think Dante is beginning to develop this idea of, of an appreciation of creatures spread throughout time as sort of micro-revelations of the divine. He's moved so far beyond his sort of Florentine partisanship. That's what I mean by the view from above. That's what Dante has to get. In Inferno, he has merely what I call a view from within. I use some cinematic terms. He has point of view shots. And I even think that there are these kind of cool performative moments in the poetry, maybe particularly in the, on the back of Jerrion, where the author wants us to forget for a moment that we're looking at a, at a pilgrim being narrated about and wants us to see point of view shot um, for ourselves briefly before we snap back into it. And the, the figure of the pilgrim reemerges in our mind. We're sort of immersed in this... And, the, the stench and the clouds and the fog. And there's all kinds of really, there's, you know, I, I've counted them in the book, but there are like three dozen different moments of failed vision or restricted vision or obscured vision or failed recognition. It's a view from, it's a view from within. And I think it would have been really painful for a medieval audience so accustomed to think about vision as the most powerful senses, as, as Aquinas says, summing up, summing up, you know, 1200 years of commonplaces. It would be so painful to have that continually sort of blocked. And I think it would create a real kind of visceral disturbance in the original audience. And Purgatorio, of course, is, I think, the beginning. Maybe a linear perspective is reemerging in our conversation here. The beginning of sort of framing things out in their just proportions. And it ends, of course, on the top of a mountain, which is a kind of um, seedbed for, it's like a botanical garden. For every single plant and species that exists below, and it's all sort of gathered back together. All of the potencies of the world are gathered together in a single seminal, fruitful, fertile place. Which on Earth you'd have to you'd have to explore the whole world to find piecemeal, fragmented throughout the world. So that's my kind of read: is that Dante moves from an epistemological condition of having uh, nothing but views from within and they're broken and obscured and twisted and perverted and distorted until he gets this extraordinary vision of a view from above in which all these creatures are micro-revelations or if you want to go on the divine naming tradition, names of God. One of the very 
I think, well-respected translation and commentary on the Commedia by Anthony Esselin. He himself describes the process as sitting down with the Summa Theologica and moving back and forth between the Commedia and Thomas Aquinas. If this is the case, that you can write a very good commentary, a very good translation of the Commedia just by meditating on Thomas Aquinas, where does that leave a Platonist like you? Right. Yeah, I think it's, an, it's an, uh, kind of a trope of scholarship all throughout the 20th century. Um, Dorothy Sayers says it as well. There's some Italian scholars in the sort of age of Risorgimento uh, uh, and the kind of clericalism, anti-clericalism debates um, that the comedy is nothing but a summa in verse. And my work has been uh, completely against that. And I'm interested in polysemia dantesca, as um, an Italian scholar, Gianfranco Contini, said it, polysemia dantesca. That is the polysemous nature of Dante's text. And Contini put it in this way, that seemingly Dante didn't have the ability to forget anything that he read. <laughs> and so that when he uses even a single, a single line is actually this extraordinary kind of uh, composition, which he's drawing some stuff from lyrical poets of his youth, his own stuff. He's got translations of Ovid kind of coming out. And then he just got various bits and pieces of Stoicism and Platonism and obviously Aristotelianism and Franciscanism all together. That's how I think of it. I think of the comedy as like a bird's nest. But one of those really clever kind of desperate birds that's using shoestrings and ribbons and leaves and all kinds of like random bits. I think that's how it feels to sort of read, read Dante. So I think that puts a Platonist in really good position. Because a Platonist, after the Timaeus, or maybe Boethius, or even this uh, this moment in uh, in Aquinas' compendium, where I think he's pretty Platonic, um, a Platonist sees the visible world as traces of the invisible world. But it sees the invisible world as incapable of being fully transposed into the visible. So the sense of abundance, the sense of heterogeneity, and the sense of what the medievals would call veritas in this natural world is a kind of trace that is all pointing or gesturing. Um, you of St. Victor might call it a sacramentum or a, or a symbol or an image. It's gesturing beyond itself. I think that makes for great poetry. And I think that's exactly what Dante says about his work is that it's the greatest thing that has ever been written and is a total failure simultaneously. It's a work of apophatic cataphaticism and the greatest one that ever existed. To what extent is Umberto Eco a Dantean novelist? I don't think, yeah, I don't know him well enough to even comment on that, sadly. Yeah. I could say some random things. It just strikes me that what, what, you, what you described would be a, a way of describing. I mean, my feeling is that he's, my feeling is that he's got all the heterogeneity but not the apophaticism. Mm -hmm. I feel like someone like someone like Borges, I think, might be significantly closer to Dante. And but Borges sort of divides up his mystical side, his ineffable side, his apophatic side, which seemingly remains in his lyrical poetry, in which he ta talks about pursuing the invisible tiger, the tiger that has haunted his dreams. One of my students wrote about this a couple years ago, and the short story side of him which in some sense is the sort of the laughable multiplicity, the curse 
that nothing but particulars would be the sort of nominalist nightmare. So I think in a way, Borges has these really important sides of Dante, but sort of playing out in different genres. Did Dante invent purgatory? I mean, doctrinally. And his, you know, is his purgatory a distraction when it comes to our doctrinal understanding of the afterlife? Um, no, he didn't invent it. Jacques Le Goff has a book on the invention of purgatory. I mean, purgatory is really old. And depending on what you do with some of these very mysterious books and with lines in, in, in Paul himself, it could actually even be biblical. I mean, there are these fascinating lines about gold being tried by fire and twigs and hay being burned away. And that, that stimulated the medieval imagination. It's in Shepherd of Hermas, right? There's a tower being built out of stones and there's some stones which don't fit and are going to be thrown out. And the shepherd uh, asks the angel if all of them will be destroyed. And he says, no, some of them will be refined and will indeed be able to be incorporated into the building. Um, but the architecture of purgatory, the sense that it's not just this one place where you go to be refined by fire, but it's a progress. And that progress is structured according to your virtues and your vices and your previous life. And I mean, it's... That there's a mountain that you climb is, I mean, this seems to be central to, even today, the popular imagination of purgatory. Yeah. I think to give moral philosophy, moral theology flesh is Dante's, is Dante's achievement. Mm -hmm. Is that something that can be a distraction at the same time, do you think? I mean, there's, there's a way in which the, the quantitative uh, approach to purgatory that comes to the fore after Dante is is limiting, and I think some have argued that you couldn't have had that uh, that quantitative approach, that that sense that that everybody's experience of purgatory is this progress, this pilgrimage, and you can speed your loved one on the way to purgatory by literally speeding up the years or knocking off the years that are, that are required to reach that. Uh, that happy end by doing certain things in this life. Yeah. Well, or how does Dante, does Dante get us beyond a, a kind of uh, actuarial approach to the afterlife? Well, I think so. Um, I mean, I don't want to say anything for misreadings of, uh, of Purgatorio, but yeah, no, I think so. Because I think the I think the central, well, I already said that one of the central stories is the ability of, human beings to rediscover freedom, meaningful freedom within a community. I think the other uh, story is to find the ability to love. I mean, freedom and love are literally at the center of purgatory. And that's why I think purgatory is so interesting. For most of the souls, they just have to sit around and wait a long time and engage in really repetitive actions until they start loving. But there's this kind of, you know, escape valve in purgatory. There's mercy in all unexpected places. I think one of the most interesting things about the moment where Dante sees his old buddy Belacqua and Belacqua is sort of sitting around in the shade, doesn't want to go anywhere because he realizes he has to wait an enormously long time um, before he'll even be allowed on the gates. But just a couple county later, the angel explains to Dante that anyone who comes up and casts himself on his face in humility, he is under order to open the gates to that individual. So there are all these, um, I think that's, I think that's, great with Dante. I think, I think he's, he's undermining that sort of sense. I think he realized that for most people, the sort of practice and habituation 
at choosing love within a community takes a long time. But for some, it's a shortcut and it's love and love can melt away all of the, all of the silly rules. They're just, they're just there for pedagogical purposes. What is heaven actually going to be like? Is it going to be uh, what Paul Griffiths has described as iterative stasis, where we're casting down our golden crowns around the glassy sea and doing that over and over again in a liturgical repetition? Or is it going to be uh, Reepicheep's pursuit of the end of the world where the water just keeps getting sweeter and sweeter, the sun keeps getting brighter, or in the great divorce where the where the saints are progressing up into these mountains and the mountains just keep going and going and you go further up and further in. What's it going to be like? Yeah, I really like those ideas of a, a dynamic experience of bliss. Um, Gregory of Nyssa obviously talks about that in Life of Moses. That is kind of a dynamic process to the extent you love, you see. However, when you see, it causes you to wonder, which then actually warms your affections, which then increases your ability to see, which then starts the, the mechanism all over again. Mm-hmm. And because God is infinite, it's, it's inexhaustible. I think Dante's, Dante's addition, his brilliant addition, is that this happens in the midst of a community. Mm-hmm. And so he shows that when he arrives into, into Paradiso, the souls are enthusiastic, enthusiastically greet him, are sort of surprised by him. But Dante then, when he sees that their joy has been enkindled, his own joy enkindled. However, when Dante's joy itself increases, the original receiver's joy increases, and it seemingly is this sort of dynamic process. And so I, I've, I've thought before that there's a technical notion in Aquinas called lumen gloriae. It's the light in which we see God's light. God's light, all these wonderful paradoxes, is too bright. It blinds us. We only see God as dark because he's too bright. However, he gives us a sort of added ability of light in which we see his light. I think Dante is playing around with the idea that the lumen gloriae is the sort of efflorescence of the human community, that our human loves actually enable us to see more of divine love, so that as the mystical rose, as the human community actually grows in unity and diversity, harmony and plurality simultaneously, it actually becomes more and more joyful because I'm not only excited that I'm there, but I'm really excited about your particular story that you got there in your own unique way. So I think that's the, I think that's the, that's the talent of the final canticle is to explain a situation in which beatitude is not a one-on-one experience, but well, he, Dante really is able to baptize his original lyrical poetry, which talks about precisely about this mechanism of falling in love and the exchange of radiance through eyes and what that psychologically does as you try to express ineffable shades of meaning in the soul. Um, Dante's love lyric ultimately finds a really important place in Paradiso. The Vita Nuova comes back. Often in the middle of these interviews, we play a round of Would You Rather? 
in which you are asked to choose between two undesirable options or two very desirable options that you would never in the real world want to have to choose between. Okay, are you game? Yes, do it. Okay. Tolstoy or Dostoevsky? Tolstoy. But you're wearing a Brothers Karamazov shirt. I am wearing a Brothers Karamazov shirt. <laughs> um, well, I thought you had to be really spontaneous. Um, I mean, Dostoevsky's a genius. I love him. But uh, Tolstoy's perfect. I, I one of someone said really well. I think what I believe that Tolstoy is the world's greatest novelist, but Dostoevsky wrote the world's greatest novel. How's that? Hillbilly Thomist or cowboy Thomist? Mm, cowboy Platonist. <laughs> what what is a clou- uh, cowboy Platonist? I have no idea. But yeah. I'll, I'll, I'd like to meet one. <laughs> um, uh, rodeo or polio? Rodeo. I guess I've been in Wyoming a long time. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? Great question. One's weirdly urban and one's, one's radically individualistic. Uh, the rodeo is, is a, a granite cowboy, cowgirl, overcoming the strength, the primitive strength of an animal. And the other is this infinitely urban process of which local neighborhoods are represented and local chaplains bless the horses in the, in the chapel before they go out and um yeah i think it, i think that's what it is it's urban versus individual narnia or middle earth middle earth but i do love narnia <laughs> i i guess it's i don't know middle earth is more mimetically pure it does a better job of creating a kind of naturalistic world which is porous to the supernatural but Narnia is like a better medieval thought vehicle. Like I'm just thinking of Hugh of St. Victor and some how there's the use of the imagination to create a structure. Wrap your mind around it and then use it to think through it out into the other, other side. It's what they would call anagogical. It's how they felt about cathedrals. I think Lewis, Lewis does that better than Tolkien, even though Tolkien gets... The purification of human emotions better. The historical Beatrice or the historical Laura, Laura, of Petrarch's sonnets, to the extent that we actually might know the historical people. Beatrice. Beatrice gets to speak. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what she says is a, is a total surprise. Yeah. You read Purgatorio 28 expecting a romantic reunion in the midst of long grasses. <laughs> and instead, what you get is an apocalyptic nightmare in 29, in which Beatrice humiliates Dante and basically rips out the core of his confidence. Luther or Erasmus? Luther. Erasmus is too confident and too cynical. Whereas Luther's just a pure holy fire. Why is Nicholas of Cusa necessary for understanding? what the Middle Ages were, and what modernity is, if modernity actually is. Yeah, well, for, for a long time now, it's been kind of commonplace to write about Cusanus as a liminal figure who has access to mathematical, sort of a new mathematics, which is just about to flourish. Um, seemingly, he has a, a conception of, of space, which is more like a modern conception of, of, a, of an infinite grid. So he's beginning to get really close to us. 
in that in some sense kind of a Cartesian geometrical grid in which there are entities moving along vector forces in it. Um, and yet he still has an extraordinary kind of cataphatic, apophatic reading of this world. I think that's why he's important or why he's interesting at least is that he, ha- he has, an, I think, a really strong emerging sense of, of subjectivity in the midst of this new modern space, but doesn't see any reason why that couldn't also be read analogically. I mean, he has this cool thought experiment in On the Search for God of imagining a mustard tree that comes from a seed and he sort of plays out as an imagination and grows and then it drops thousands of mustard seeds, all of which become new trees. And then all of them grow and drop their seeds, all of which become new trees. And he sort of plays this on like in a sort of spiritual calculus saying, isn't it interesting that the human mind can conceive an infinity greater than the physical world could actually hold. And so he has this, I think, very kind of cool calculus, something analogous to a calculus, of sort of playing out this infinity of infinities, but then has this kind of cool Augustinian, Platonizing, Platinian-like interior turn that reminds us that the, the set in which all possible things are held is the human imagination. Thus, the totality of the macroscopic world becomes this vehicle for contemplating the infinite depths of the microscopic interiority. I see no reason why that kind of analogy couldn't work in a, in a cosmos after Hubble. That as, a, as our conceptions of the universe continue to unfold, both in the, on the cosmic plane as well as the sort of microscopic plane, that our conceptions are continually enlarging. The funny thing is we always feel like we're within a decade of solving it all. But what if we have another thousand years of this of sort of of infinitely stretching spaces and we discover that that quarks are actually made out of really interesting tiny cells and it just goes farther down and farther up? 20,000 years. Yeah. Why did uh, Blessed John Duns Scotus capture Hopkins's, Gerard Manley Hopkins's imagination when so much of his formation as a Jesuit should have and would have led him to, to be a Thomist, and yet he thinks of himself very much not as a, as a, as a Thomist poet, but he uh, encounters the concept of hecheitas, the thisness of things, that, you know, in Kuss's terms would be the, the, the microcosmic that, that seems to capture his imagination. Do you, do you have a sense of, of why, that, why that was? And, uh, it's because it seems to me that that's, that's something that, that's one of the reasons that Hopkins is so appealing in the contemporary world, is, is you know, his sense of the specificity and the ultimate value of little things. Yeah, I just think that he was worried that we would reduce creatures and ultimately selves to molecular structures that engage in chemical interactions and that we'd lose a sense of agency. 
we'd lose a sense of the sort of the art, I don't know, the sort of creative whim of the artist taking its structures and doing something which has never been seen before. I think Hopkins gives that kind of vision that existence in a way is this kind of creative artistic act in which I'm taking my, my fundamental structures and, but not just replaying them, but instantiating them in a unique, unrepeatable way. Yeah. I think maybe in a world of mechanization and mathematization, the fear is the loss of, of agency and everything that's associated with that creativity, nobility of will, invention, freshness. Uh, I think this, this really interesting idea that you can follow old virtues, but do it in a way which is 100% and completely unique. Just as the artist takes the same old basic colors on his palette, but then renders something which has never been seen before. Students at Wyoming Catholic College learn by heart, what is it, 38 poems over the course of their yeah, something like career. That. And it's a set, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a canon of poems, right? Like they all know the same poems. Yes, that's right. So if you could, if you could uh, add or replace a poem or two or three of those, what would you, what would you add or replace? Well, we've had to do that. Yeah. Um, we had to drop John Donne's Death Be Not Proud. Why? Because it's so hyper-rhetorical that the students think it's ridiculous. Huh. And I think it's a good it's a good proof of what Lewis said in his book on 16th century literature. He said there's an invisible wall between us in the 16th century, and that is they loved rhetoric and we don't. In the modern imagination, which thinks that explanation is good, if it's as simplistic as possible, but it combines the goods of simplicity and power of explanation, right? It's few um, as few elements as possible at the bottom, but as many elements as possible at the top. For us, rhetoric just seems obnoxiously distasteful, right? As a culture, we prefer Hemingway to Dickens. We like the sort of throbbing heartbeat of uh, Vin's 180 beats per minute or um, Adams's uh, fearful symmetry, right? This sort of pounding, glandular, rhythmic thrust forward and linear linear uh, amplification. That's us. That's how we get rhetoric, isn't it? Um, whereas the sort of, I don't know, the kind of volutes of curving around each other or the rhetorical imagination, the elliptical suggestive remarks, right? Um, the, the, the delayed revelation of the grammatical, the grammatical subject, that sort of thing. It's just repulsive to students. So we had to kill poor old Dunn. Maybe we'll bring him back in the future when, who, when so, the world likes rhetoric again. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So if you could replace a rhetorical poet, what would you, who, what would you, what would you add in? Well, we added in, um, Robert Frost for once then something, which is a great poem and it's really, it's really contemporary and the students love it. And they oftentimes say to each other, they oftentimes quote it, what was that? Truth? Pebble of Quartz? For once then, something. And so it's funny, it's actually entered into their sort of daily discourse, for once then, something. And I guess just thinking, 
without, I could think of a lot of books I'd like to, to be in our curriculum, which are presently absent, mm. but in terms of lyrical poems, um, I don't, I, I'd love to, I'd love to give Gertrude Schnackenberg's Supernatural Love yes. a try. The trick is we memorize all these things without ever showing them in text to the students. They memorize them sort of, you know, orally in this course. And I think it's a really interesting exercise in an age in which all, almost all of our information comes to the eyes. I think it actually invests a quality, a texture, a flavor of knowledge in the students' imaginations, which they couldn't have got if they'd memorized them by looking at text. So we have to keep that in mind. Some poems are really great, but they're obviously written by people and meant to be read. And I'm not exactly sure if supernatural love could do it. My feeling is it could. How, how, so how does that actually happen in practice? How do the students learn these poems without looking at them? Um, they come in and the instructor recites a line, says, everyone, could you repeat that after me? The world is too much with us late and soon. Say that. The world is too much worth us late and soon. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers and then maybe call on an individual. Sean, can you say, the world is too much with us? In the meantime, I think the instructors can sort of coach in terms of tonality, in terms of rhythm, in terms of all these kinds of other more difficult nuances that really need to accompany lyric, but which would be really hard for the students to get on their own if they're just reading lyric. Um, and we just sort of build it up, maybe maybe work on a quatrain per class, and then just spend five to ten minutes every single class adding a quatrain. And then when you've got poems, then you can recite them quickly. Ask someone to recite their favorite poem according to the mood of the of the day, according to the <laughs> weather. And as you sort of you know kind of gather up these poems, you kind of get this um, this palette of different colors which you can bring together. And one of the students' favorite things to do is is to do a parody. There have been a couple of moments in which they have an opportunity to give a toast or to give a speech in front of the whole student body. And they say, I'd like to, I'd like to recite to you a poem of my, my own creation, in which is nothing just but a bad pastiche and train wreck of lines. And <laughs> students love that. <laughs> but that's a form of literacy. So you're in a position now where you know you have tenure, you've got an established academic and sort of crossover popular academic career, you could just keep on going with that career, and yet you have decided to become an undergraduate again, to submit yourself to the indignities of undergraduate online education where your fellow students don't know that you are anything other than they are on the discussion boards, and not only that, but you're majoring in physics. Why? Well, it's kind of a secret. I can't believe uh, oh, we're talking okay. about I this. I forgot it was a secret. Okay. We but can scratch that. No, let's leave it. Um, <laughs> hopefully no one will actually listen to this. Um, yeah, no, I've, yeah, I've decided to, to go back to school. And I, was, I got my acceptance letter from the college that I'm attending. And uh, I'm really proud of it. I framed it. And I showed it to my kids and said, remember it, children, be like daddy, always stay in school. You know, I think that might be misinterpreting what that slogan is supposed to mean. Uh, and yeah, no, it's been an extraordinary experience. I'm not exactly sure what I'm encountering is unique to online education or if undergraduate education has changed in 20 years or if it's a different discipline, but it's really interesting. And yeah, it is, it is an extraordinary experience for me 
who's accustomed to sharing words to people who seem interested, um, to be scolded and lectured and uh, uh, by my classmates. So my wife says that that's worth the money in and of itself. <laughs> Um, but I've decided to become a physics major. I think for, well, maybe a serious reason and uh, a flippant reason. I wish that I had majored, double majored at University of Dallas in classics and physics. It was my intention. And I got underwater with trying to learn Greek and decided to focus my attention on that and have regretted not pursuing physics. So I don't know. Maybe it's a midlife crisis. I'm trying to um, correct <laughs> past youthful and temperate mistakes. But I'm also, I think, I'm really, I'm really interested. I'm interested in obviously in poetry, in in literature, and in the imagination. But I'm also interested in the fact that it seems completely worthless to our world. I mean, the logical positivists, the, log the logical empiricists, have won in a way, even if their particular iteration is done. We are in a purist culture, and we don't believe in anything that is not sensible or submittable to instruments. I, I guess I, I want to know that. I want to know that that paradigm from the inside, in part to see where humanistic knowledge fits in. Or I, I think it's more than just a sort of interpretive enterprise, a hermeneutical exercise in which ideas work themselves out into power. I think it's something. Uh, I guess I'm a, I don't know, uh, a poetic realist. I want it to sort of, I, I want to have an, epistemolo an epistemology which can account for it. So I think that's part of my reason, reasoning. But I'm also in, really interested in the idea of modeling, as the physicists describe it and as it is practiced in the sciences. Because that seems to me something which poetry and art and the humanistic disciplines share in common with, uh, with the sciences. That subtle realities. We have to construct thought vehicles to gesture at them, all the, while, all the while realizing that our literal representations are inadequate. And that way, we're right back to Dante. So I'm really excited. Those are a number of reasons why I'm trying to relearn how to factor quadratic equations. I'm doing pretty well at it, by the way. Jason Baxter, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.